It's not my fault. That's one of the most common excuses we give when we've done something wrong. And we rationalize that we really can't be held responsible because of some mitigating circumstance. You know. And on top of that, there are many people out there that are ready to tell us the same thing, that it's not our fault. We're not really responsible. I think that was humorously illustrated by Kevin James, an actor and comedian, who during the isolation uh, because of COVID, he decided to have a little fun. He decided to get some guy to uh, inject him into some scenes from some iconic movies. So he wasn't really there, but he kind of puts himself in these scenes to be part of it. But he doesn't portray himself as part of the actual movie. He portrays himself as the sound guy. So in one scene... Kevin's holding this mic for two actors who are bantering back and forth. It's a funny little scene. But at the end of it, Kevin stops everybody and tells them that he hadn't recorded it. He forgot to push the button to record it. And so one of the actors just storms off yelling. The other actor, you know, he follows after him. And you can hear in the background in this other room this muffled but very animate argument going on. And then one of them comes back in and uh, walked up to Kevin and in a very calm voice said, it's not your fault. And Kevin comes back. It's totally my fault. And he, he calmly responds, look at me, son. It's not your fault. It is. He says, who else is going to re- press record? You know, and, and, and then they keep going back and forth until all you can hear is the one guy saying, it's not your fault. And, and then finally Kevin eventually just erupts into tears and, and they hug in this dramatic fashion. It's, it's funny because the actual scene was very serious. But this is, you know, comedic because it obviously was his fault. The only one who could push record is the guy with the box. So some things aren't our fault, but some things are. There's nobody who's to blame but ourselves. And, and yet from a very early age, we learn this reflex, don't we? To say, it's not my fault. You know, we naturally assume that we're really innocent. Prisons are full of people who claim to be innocent. Now, I know that there are some Wrongful convictions that happen, but I mean, we, we have this reflex that we assume, there, we assume there's some reason why even what we did is not really our fault. Now, I'm not, not going to take a survey. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many in this room have not responded to something we've done by explaining how it wasn't really our fault. We say, you know, it's, it's not my fault. If you hadn't done what you did, then I would not do, or I wouldn't have done what I did. So we need somebody in charge to tell us who's really to blame. And that's what Paul explains in our passage that God does. God is doing, he will do one day, this, just telling us who's to blame. He's the judge. So he determines who's at fault He determines who's really innocent, who's guilty. In our passage this morning, Paul's going to explain God's verdict on humanity. And in a word, that verdict is guilty. We're not innocent. It is our fault. Now, in verses 16 and 17, you can turn to Romans 1, where we're going to be this morning. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul had just given this gloriously positive statement. You know, he explains that, he says that it's, he's not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
But he goes from announcing that very positive thing to immediately talking about the universal guilt of humanity. Why? Seems like a, a startling move. Because we cannot properly understand the good news about the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus until we understand why we need that righteousness. This is very important for us to hear this morning because many people around us are telling us it's not really our fault. And what's more, we have questions about the universal guilt of humanity. You know, we want to know about those who haven't heard. Now, what about those who haven't heard about Jesus? Is God really fair in this universal verdict? Now, in answering that question, very many times people don't look in the Bible. When people want to answer those kinds of questions about the fairness and, the, and whether or not God really does hold us all guilty, very often they imagine what they think God is like, you know, based on their impression of God. Now, what if I did that to you, though? What if, suppose I decided what you were going to do, or maybe even what you've done, simply by my, my impression of you, like my understanding of who you are. I didn't ask you. I just, I just imagined what I think you'll do based on what I think fits with you. And suppose you had actually told me what you've done or what you would do. And I said, no, 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 that, that doesn't fit with who I think you are. Would that be fair? Would that be true? So if God chose to reveal his verdict on humanity through the Apostle Paul, shouldn't we listen to that rather than just trying to assess what we think God's like or what he'll do based on what we think he's like? If we're people of the book, we know what the answer is. We need to listen to what God says about himself. We need to spend time getting acquainted with what he says about himself. And we need to not just imagine what he's like. That's vitally important for us because if we want to understand this good news of righteousness by faith in Jesus, then we need to understand our actual situation. We need to understand why we need that. So let's pay attention this morning to what Paul says here in Romans 1 and verses 18 through 23. Paul explains God's verdict on humanity. And what we're going to do, we're going to cover that by answering two questions this morning about that verdict. First of all, we need the initial question, what is the verdict? And then we're going to answer the question, why is that the verdict? And there's two main reasons why that's the verdict. Two main truths that explain it. God is known and God is rejected. So first of all, what does Paul say God's verdict on humanity is? And there's two places that you see this verdict. In verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then in verse 20, it ends with, So they are without excuse. So he begins this section, he he begins it with the word for. He's linking it to those past verses, especially verses 16 and 17. And it's not that this is the reason for those past verses. Again, this is an explanation for why what he just said is necessary. Why God's salvation, his righteousness by faith in Jesus, why we need that. So just as the righteousness of God is revealed, he says that back in verse 17, now he says the wrath of God is revealed. 
He's not saying they're revealed in the same way, but he is saying they are both presently being revealed. And again, we, we talked last week about how that word revealed, it means that this is, this is apocalyptic. This is an end times revelation. So there is a sense in which what's being revealed is the end time verdict on us that's even now being revealed. It's even now being explained and seen. The eternal judge has already ruled on us. We stand under his verdict even now. And just as the righteousness of God is seen in his action, in his declaring us righteous, so this wrath of God is also seen in God's action. So the action, he's going to spell out the action that he's describing here in the wrath of God throughout this chapter. But, what we want to understand, it's not just an emotional response. At the same time, it's not an impersonal response or an, an impersonal result. It's not just something that happens on earth. He says that this is revealed from heaven. It's not just a natural consequence. Now, many people are not comfortable with the idea of God's wrath. Now, if God is love, then how can a God of love exhibit wrath. Wrath involves flying off the handle, doesn't it? Isn't God patient? This is a perennial struggle that we have. It stretches back in time, and it's a problem today for us to understand. We don't imagine a God of wrath. We imagine a God, I think, is more like the God that Greg Gilbert describes in his book, What is the Gospel? He describes a modern version of God when he writes, Let me introduce you to God. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were born. That was back when people cared about what he thought and considered him pretty important in their lives. Of course, that's all changed now, though the God, God of this poor fellow, he, he never adjusted well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging out in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him. And we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems. Or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books. You know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who, who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some s- slightly weird sign that what I want to do, regardless, is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me. Ever. For anything. Oh, sure, I know he deep down once wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect, and I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. I wouldn't have him any other way. 
Now, I, I hope that's not your view of God, but it really is for many. I mean, they've done studies on this. When God just wants you to be generally good, and when he's, more than that, he, he just wants you to be happy and, and experience something good, and when he doesn't really need to be a part of your life, he's just there to help you, then God's wrath really is jarring. The idea of God's wrath does not fit with that. Wrath is a term of emotion. That doesn't mean that God is moody or that he's ruled by his emotions, but it does mean that he is angry. God is love as well as light. He is merciful and gracious, but he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. God is holy, the Bible says. That means he is both loving and righteous, and the perfectly righteous response to our sin is wrath. That's an emotional response to sin, but it's not erratic or irrational. It's the appropriate response to sin. Now, our angry responses are, are almost always inappropriate because we don't have a righteous outlook. But anger is not inherently an incorrect response. There are things, there are wrongs in this world that we ought to be angry about. So even though many people would imagine God as this kind of senile being who just basically wants everybody to be happy, doesn't want to upset anyone, the Bible describes God differently. Loving? Absolutely. See that in the cross. And what Jesus did for us. But equally righteous. And so rightly angry with our sin. Now, with God, this emotion, this, this response of emotion, it's not simply emotion. He responds in his wrath with action. The corresponding action is punishment. So just as the righteousness of God is a justifying righteousness, the wrath of God is a punishing wrath. So the judge, again, he has made his ruling. And he is even now acting on it. We're guilty. Deserving his punishment. And that includes everyone. He says his wrath is against all men. And everyone is characterized as ungodly and unrighteous. And further, they, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And we're going to say more about that later. But this is the universal verdict God said, everyone has not lived as he intended. So ungodliness and unrighteousness, those terms go together to just describe the totality of our failure. He's going to explain this more. But what he's saying is that we all face God's punishing anger because we have not lived in a way that corresponds to, to God's holy character. We are ungodly. That means not like God. We are unrighteous. We are not doing what is righteous. So Paul explains in verse 20 that this verdict is deserved. He says, they, as in everyone, are without excuse. We have no excuse. We have no defense. There's no case in our favor. We're responsible for this state we're in. It is our fault. So the rest of this passage is going to go on to explain why that's the case, why this is this verdict. We all deserve his righteous punishing wrath. 
We're without excuse. Why is that? Why is that God's verdict on humanity? That's the second question we're going to look at. Why is it that we stand under God's wrath? Why do we deserve that? Again, the summary for that is found in verse 18. We are ungodly and unrighteous. We suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. Really, this whole chapter is Paul's explanation of of those ideas. He's going to go on to explain all of this. So we're not going to see exactly what he means, fully what he means, until we finish the chapter. But he begins to explain what he means by the truth and its suppression in verses 19 through 23 which we are going to look at. So the truth is the truth about God. And what our response to that truth is, is to reject it, to suppress it, to prevent it from having its desired effect. Truth about God should have resulted in a particular response. But we've prevented that response from happening by rejecting the truth about God. So the reason for this verdict is twofold. In these verses. On the one hand, God is known. But on the other hand, God is rejected. So in verses 19 and 20, Paul explains the truth about God. He says that God is known by everyone. You might ask, how is he known by everyone? We, We know about agnostics, right? The etymology of that is we don't know if there's a God. We know about atheists who, who categorically, adamantly deny the existence of God. So how can, how can I say that God is known by everyone? Or rather, how can God say through Paul that everyone, that God is known by everyone? Paul explains, starting in verse 19, he says, What can be known about God is plain to them. And again, them is a reference to all, all men, all humanity. So he isn't just saying that it's possible for God to be known. What he's saying is, That what's necessary to know about God is evident, it's clear, it's obvious. And not just to some, to them here, to all. So anybody claiming to be ignorant of God, they have no excuse. Because the knowledge is there for them. So any perceived ignorance, it's not innocent. It's it's not even unfortunate. Simply unfortunate. It is unfortunate, but not simply unfortunate. It's culpable. It's punishable. God is righteous to punish everyone because what's necessary to know about him is plain for all to see. Why? Why is it plain? Because the second half of verse 19 says God made it plain for them. This isn't just some inadvertent thing. It was intentional. It was an intentional act of God by his creation. That's where he's shown this knowledge of himself to everyone. Now, what is it about God That is plain and obvious. Paul calls it first his invisible attributes. And there's a play on words here. What Paul's saying is that what is invisible, these invisible attributes are visible. These unseen qualities are clearly seen. They're invisible because God is invisible and because they're qualities. You cannot see qualities or characteristics or attributes directly. You see them indirectly. So Paul explains what he means. By these invisible qualities or attributes, he calls them, he defines them as his eternal power and divine nature. The the word eternal there is qualifying both of those Greek words, translated power and divine nature. Saying that those ideas, they're always true of God because they're essential to his being and he's eternal. So how can you see his power and, and this godness that's always been true of God? 
It's been apparent, he says, ever since the creation of the world because it has been clearly seen in the things that have been made. So creation displays God's power and godness, we'll say. The existence of this world, with its complexity and vastness, it requires a powerful, intelligent being. And what else could we call that being but God? To bring all this about. So it's not, Paul's not saying that we know a great deal about God by means of his creation. But it is clear, according to God himself, that creation demonstrates that there there is a powerful being outside of this world, outside of this creation that brought it about. And it points to more than just an impersonal cause. It points to an intelligent and powerful designer. Now, some people could argue with that. You know, they'd say, well, I don't think the data warrants that conclusion. You know, I don't think that it's obvious and not as obvious as Paul is saying that it is. And I, I think God should have done, been more obvious than he was. And often what coincides with that kind of thinking is that the person really isn't culpable. If there's a God and he does, you know, he, he, he exists, then, then a person's ignorance isn't really punishable because God didn't do, do enough to prove himself. That's the idea that people have. But who determines if God has done enough to demonstrate his existence? Do we determine what is enough proof for us? Or does the one who designed us get to say how much is necessary? The one who really knows what we're capable of. Who determines whether or not we have an excuse here? Many people think that we individually get to decide that. We get to decide whether God has proven himself or not. Consider this uh, story in the form of a song from Sarah Sparks. She sings, There once was an anthill, known for its quick thinking, uniform movements and synchronized blinking. The queen was the best of the best, and the rest all agreed. One ant returned from his day on the sidewalk. Puzzled, he turned to a neighbor, and they talked. He told of a specter or monster or ghost that he'd seen. I've seen a footprint that's 50 ants long and it's wide as 10 raindrops complete with five claws. Though you may not believe what you've heard me describe, I've seen the truth and it's burned on my eyes. This, you can imagine, caused quite a commotion. Ants are quite loyal and high on devotion. The queen brought to trial the word of this renegade ant. The ant then repeats, I've seen the foot, it's the color of sand, and when I listened closely, I heard the word man, and I don't know its mind, and I don't know its plans, but I will testify on my word as an ant. The queen raised her voice and said to the wind, prove yourself if we should believe, for how can I know if I cannot see? All of my rule, here's my one guarantee, we ants who still think are the ants who are free. The queen then declared at the top of Ant Mountain, ranting and raving, her subjects surrounded, come down on this mountain to prove your existence to me. Now by this time, our first ant was all tied up, mindlessly binded to show them what he'd done. His last words is all, or he could not recant. Said he, why would a human bow down to an ant? We've got the wrong picture when we demand that God must give us proof for his existence. Why would God bow down to a human? 
Who's really in charge? He's the one who designed us. He knows better than we ever could what we need to know in order to be culpable. Another major flaw is the idea that God, when we think God must prove himself to us, is that we could determine what would be enough proof to make us responsible. How much would be enough? Could we actually even determine that for ourselves? God says there is enough proof. Now, what Paul isn't saying here is that you could use natural theology to prove God's existence apologetically. It it may help you as you're sharing the gospel, but he's going to go on to say there's more going on than simply a matter of proof, like data. It's more than just observing data. But what he is saying is that the truth is out there. It's visible. It's obvious even. And that's part of the reason why we are responsible to God. It's what we've done with that knowledge that makes us guilty. So why do we stand inexcusably guilty before a holy God, worthy to experience his wrath? Part of the answer is that God is known. Second half is Paul. Paul says is God is rejected. So how is God rejected? Begins the second part of his explanation, again with the word for. And he restates what he's just said as they knew God. So they knew God. But he explains that their response to that knowledge wasn't what it should have been. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The appropriate, the necessary response to the knowledge of God that's apparent in his creation is to glorify God. We honor God, as it says here, or glorify him and give thanks to him. That word honor, it's translated by many other translations as glorify. That's what we were created to do. Isaiah 43.7 describes God's people this way. It says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's why we were made. That's also why we were saved. Paul says in Ephesians 1, that we were saved, he repeatedly says this, to the praise of his glory. Jesus even describes an evangelistic purpose to his followers living out this righteousness of the kingdom. He says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. And Peter said the same thing, really just quoting Jesus. He told the believers he wrote to in his first letter, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what is God's glory? It's the display of his greatness. Now, in the Old Testament, there's descriptions, and even in the New, there's descriptions of of God revealing his greatness in this kind of physical way. So you have that luminous cloud that filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40. But God also says in his word that He displays his greatness in other ways, through his actions, through what he's done. He has demonstrated his glory by what he has made. That's what David says in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. But how does that relate to glorifying God? We glorify God. That doesn't mean we add any glory to God. We glorify God when we recognize his glory. 
We see his greatness, and we recognize that it's worth our supreme, it's worthy of our supreme admiration and praise. So we honor God when we see his glory, or we could say we praise his glory. So when we see, when humans see the the knowledge of God in creation, when we see his eternal power and divine nature as evidenced by his creation, the proper response is awe, really. It's, it's looking at what he's made, recognizing him in, and having the supreme admiration for him and praising him for it. Now, when we think about the fact that we are also part of this that he's made, that we're the product of this creation, of his eternal power and his divine nature, then not only do we glorify him, we also should thank him. We, we should thank God. We should have gratitude that he made us and that he put us in this world and gave us his life. So we owe God gratitude. And we've all seen ingratitude, right? It's probably easiest to see this in children. Right? I'm sure you've done something really kind for a child and watched them experience it happily and then not thank you at all. Right? So if you take your kids to go get ice cream, I'm sure... You've seen a child gobble up that ice cream without ever thinking to thank you for it. Why do they do that? Because in their thinking, they they deserve that, right? I mean, why wouldn't you give them ice cream? So think about our response to this knowledge of God. It should have resulted in us recognizing how great God is. Should have followed with our thanking God for what he's done for us. But that's not what we've done. And why not? Because we're kind of more enamored with our own significance, right? You know, we, we think we're pretty great. We think, of course, God would make us and give us this life. We deserve it. It's just in the back of our head. But notice what Paul says is the fallout for this failure Although we knew God, we failed to honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul goes on to say that instead of that result that we were supposed to have, that intended result, something else happened. He says, they, again meaning everyone, became futile in their thinking. Their minds created to reason a certain way became useless. God intended our minds to be able to recognize and see his greatness and see his godness in what he's made. But we refused to do that. So what we were made for, the function it had, is now useless. It's futile. And he goes on to say that, you know, we were meant to see, recognize the light of the glory of God. And we have shut ourselves off from it. So that now foolish, our foolish hearts were darkened. The heart in the Bible, it's not just talking about your feelings. It has to do with everything that's going on inside of you. Your your thinking, your, your wanting, your feeling, it's all a part of what the Bible means by heart. So our mind, emotions, and will were supposed to work in this unified fashion in response to what we observe in creation. But the opposite has happened. We shut ourselves off from that light. So our foolish hearts were darkened and turning away from worshiping the eternal God as we were supposed to, 
glorifying him, thanking him, worshiping him. When we turned away from that, we didn't just stop worshiping. So Paul goes on to say, again, Sarah Sparks, she has this line in one of her songs, worship is in our blood. We were made for worship. And so when we refused to worship the one who made us, we shifted that worship to things that he made. And what we assume is that we're wise to do that. You know, we think we're doing the right thing. We're doing the opposite of the right thing. We have moved from worshiping the creator to worshiping the creature. And it's not wise, though we think it is. It's foolish. And so Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul's accentuating our foolishness here by saying that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We exchanged an immortal object of worship for a mortal object. We, We exchanged an incorruptible object of worship for a corruptible object. God is not, he will not decay he, he is outside of this entropy-laden existence that we're in. And we've exchanged worshiping him for worshiping something that decomposes, that does not last forever. And then there's further irony, he says, in, in this, by wording this in a way that connects it to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, 20 and 24 mention the creation of birds and animals and creeping things in precisely this wording. And then in Genesis 1, 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The ESV and, and actually most translations kind of obscure the connection here because verse 23 could more literally read in the likeness of images, bringing both those words back into it. Paul's emphasizing just how foolish this is. He's going to summarize this in verse 25 as worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. So here we are. We're made in the image of God, in the image and likeness of God. And what have we done? We've made images in the likeness of something else. Not in the the likeness of the one who made us, but in the likeness of what he made. that, That really is the height of stupidity. That's what Paul's saying. This is beyond stupid, what we've done. But not only that, it is horribly offensive, and it's worthy of God's wrath. Paul is not describing something that happened at one point in history, though. He's describing the experience of every human who's ever lived. Now, you do see this happen in history, In fact, the Jewish people in Paul's day, I mean, they were well aware of Gentile idolatry and how it was different from them in the first century. But what Paul does here, he actually quotes or nearly quotes Psalm 106.20, which says they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Understand what that's a reference to. I'll give you a hint. The psalmist isn't talking about Gentiles in that verse. Psalm 106 is a recitation of Israel's history. And that verse is talking about the golden calf. So what Paul's doing here, again, 
He's not suggesting that this is just something that happened at one point in history. This is the natural and free response of every human who has ever lived. And you say, I've never done that. I've never bowed to some idol. I wouldn't be so sure of that. As one Bible teacher puts it, the, the old gods are still with us. They've simply changed their clothes so that they merge more easily into the modern crowd. See, it's obviously true that, you know, while there are a few people in America, Hindus and others, who bow to statues, most of us don't do that. But what are the objects of our honor and gratitude? You know, what is it that we most admire? What is it that we're so thankful for its benefits? Whatever that is, is your idol. So what have we exchanged God for? What, what is it that we glorify? What is, what is it that we give thanks for more than anything else? Now, Paul is speaking to the unsaved world. He's speaking to people who are outside of Christ. And so, in Christ, we have been rescued from serving these false gods. So, who did we serve before Christ? And who are we still tempted to worship? Once again, I think Sarah Sparks does a good job of explaining how this is universally true. She says, so don't tell me you've got no religion because worship is in our blood and the heart is a hungry altar always aching for something to love. Maybe it's fame, fortune, or ease, or romance, or pleasure. Whatever you love above anything else, that's what you glorify. That's what you worship. That's what you're thankful for. That's the image that you've replaced God with. And yes, it's a part of this creation, whatever it is. Everyone rejects God for something else. We refuse to worship the one who made us, and instead, we worship something that he made. So we deserve the wrath of God. God's verdict stands. We are guilty, and we have no excuse. And there's not a person on this planet that that is not true of. The person on the island in the specific in the Pacific, stands guilty. You know, God doesn't owe him or her anything. They knew God, and they rejected him. They don't have to hear the gospel to deserve his wrath. Understand they don't deserve the gospel. They don't deserve what that gospel is about. They don't deserve Jesus dying for them. Let alone hearing about it. None of that is deserved. The truth is no one is innocent. That's what Paul's saying. Every last one of us is guilty and without excuse. We all deserve God's wrath. And yet, God didn't leave us in this state. That's why Jesus came. While we were in this unrighteous state, rebellious state, when all we deserved was the revelation of God's wrath, he revealed his righteousness by faith in Jesus. 
that we have not been righteous. Jesus is the righteous one. We've sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God in flesh. Jesus deserved God, God the Father's acceptance and blessing, not his wrath. And yet, that's what he took. He took God's wrath on the cross. The cross was an expression of God's wrath. And God's Son accepted that in the place of everyone who believes. Not, not just believes for a moment or one moment in time. This is for everyone who believes with the faith that keeps believing. So the first way we should respond to this passage is to turn away from worshiping other things. Whatever it is that you, you value instead of God, more than God, you should turn away from that. And you should believe in this salvation Salvation from sin and from God's wrath that Jesus provided. You should trust in that. Believe that he died and rose again to rescue you from that worship, to rescue you from his wrath. You turn from it. And you begin to worship him. You turn from worshiping created things to worship the true and living God by trusting in his son's sacrifice on the cross and then living for the one who died for you. Now, if that is true, and if you've made that known, had it affirmed through baptism, and you belong to a church family where you can take part in this process that we're involved in here, of following Jesus together and helping each other become more like him, if that's true of you, then what we're going to do now is respond to this message by glorifying God and thanking him as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is not, what we're about to do is not an individual practice to help you in your hermetically sealed faith. This is a corporate moment. This is for those who belong to a church. This is how we, as a church, reaffirm one another's faith by participating in this together. But if you're going to reaffirm our faith, as a church, there must have been a time when you affirmed your faith as a church. And we believe that takes place through baptism. So that's why we ask of everyone who participates with us in this Lord's Supper, we ask that you only participate with us if you've been baptized as a believer in a church that believes the same gospel that we believe. And if you are a member of a local church where you can be accountable to Christ as you gather with others in his name. So if that's not true, we do ask that you would let these elements pass you by. We, we do want you to do this, partake of this in a manner worthy. And there's a warning for not doing that. So we'd ask you to let those pass. So would the men come forward to administer the Lord's Supper? While you wait, I would encourage you to examine yourself. So are you being led away by modern idols? Are you treating anything as more admirable and praiseworthy than God? Is there anything you're more thankful for than God? What we want to do this morning is repent of that. 
And then we want to join in this reaffirmation of our faith with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, because we're doing that together, that is why I ask that we wait to partake until after I've read scripture, and then we'll all do this together. So join me in a word of prayer. Father, your word has some some glorious truths. The, The gospel is an amazing expression of your love, your kindness. But in order for us to understand that, we have to understand this very, very terrible predicament that we are in by our own doing. So as difficult as it is to hear about your wrath, It's necessary for us to understand. And again, I pray that the response this morning would not be to run away, but to run to you. And now as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, as we celebrate this expression of our faith in Christ and what he's done for us, pray that it would it would. We'd benefit from the understanding of what Jesus has saved us from. The wrath that we deserve. Punishing wrath. That we are without excuse. We deserve. And yet you have been gracious and merciful showing us this kindness that we do not deserve in Christ. That we would be able to revel in that. Be able to rejoice in it. And be humbled by it. Be encouraged to reach out to the people around us knowing that we we deserve it no more than anyone. That we would desire to share this truth with the people around us and encourage to do so even as we take this communion. Thank you for your amazing grace towards us in your Son.